Thursday, December 7th. Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, And I'm Cherry Gregg. Happy Thursday, Avi. World leaders are still meeting at the COP28 summit in Dubai to come up with ways to slow climate change. Well, some experts say we should be talking more about what we eat and how our diets contribute to the warming planet. Americans love meat. I know I do. Okay. Mm, And it's a big. That's no secret. I know. And it's a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So if we could get people to reduce their meat consumption and make changes to our agricultural industry, could it have an impact? I'm going to say yes. Yes. (laughs) But how much? That's that's a topic Mm -hmm. for the show today. So what do you think? If you eat meat, have you thought about cutting back a bit? Maybe doing a meatless Monday or switching ha-ha cold turkey to a plant-based diet. Call us. Let us know. 888-477-9499. Email studio2 at whyy.org. Also coming up on the show, Philadelphia Film Society is counting down the best films of all time. Our Curiosities correspondent, <laughs> Matt Gillum, will bring us the top five. And we'll talk with an expert about the so-called mystery respiratory illness in dogs that's going around and why it may not be such a mystery after all. But first, we got to dig in. We had a bit of breaking news this morning. The University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees is holding an emergency meeting today as the school's president, Liz McGill, faces scathing criticism over her performance at that House hearing earlier this week. And this is according to reporting by CNN, that virtual meeting of the board of trustees began around nine o'clock this morning. Mm. And it was scheduled very recently. Uh, If you recall, Avi, during the meeting, McGill was asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates Penn's code of conduct. She said it was context dependent when determining whether someone violated code of conduct. She now faces a chorus of criticism, including Penn Hillel, the White House, the United States Senate delegation, donors, students, and other politicians all calling for her to resign. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro was in Philadelphia yesterday, and he also chastised McGill. Here's what he had to say. That was an unacceptable statement. Frankly, I thought her comments were absolutely shameful. It should not be hard to condemn genocide. The simple answer is yes, that violates our policy. Yeah, and of course, McGill has expressed regret for her statements in a video released Wednesday evening. She's pledged to evaluate Penn's policies regarding hate on campus. Emergency board meeting. Yeah, that that signals something Mm -hmm. is going on. You know, for a while I was, I, I guess... More on that wait and see whether whether this would truly cost her her job, as many, many donors have been driving toward mm-hmm. this end for a while. Uh, and still, we don't know. But emergency board meeting. I mean, Doesn't those three good, words. Yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, like you said, it all traces back to her performance in this congressional committee. At least that's the impetus for this latest evolution. Um, and, you know, in that moment clearly mm-hmm. uh, you could see that she was evaluating the question like a lawyer would, mm-hmm. which she is. She's a constitutional scholar, sort of parsing it and equivocating. And, um, you know, the, the thought that went through my mind as I watched it was they're not really asking you this as a legal scholar. Yeah. They're asking you this as the leader of the institution. Mm-hmm. Leader of an institution is really more a, ro- a role like a politician. You know, mm-hmm. you have different constituencies. You're trying to balance them. They're not really asking for your legal analysis 
of, of, of this. Even if that was the question, the question was whether whether it violated the Penn's code of conduct, which is in some ways is sort of a kind of a legal question. Yeah. Um, but it, anyways, clearly uh, the heat is on at Penn. The heat is on and you want to make sure everybody on your campus feels safe. So she's going to have to evaluate this and we will be watching this story and uh, yeah. seeing what yeah, happens. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more developments pretty yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, shifting topics here to one of our own shows in-house here, The Pulse celebrated its 10th anniversary Aww. last night. Say it to us. Happy birthday to you. You could tell that's Mike and Scott oh. leading a rousing happy birthday at a nice party they had last night for The Pulse, which I think you all know is our, our award-winning health and science show. It's broadcast all over the country, started here 10 years Aww. ago. Um, uh, Mike and had a chance actually at that party last night to talk about some of her favorite pieces over the years. Just today I thought back to a story that Nina had done and I don't even, I, I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it, but it was about a young girl who had survived gun violence and then she sort of lived this very recru- reclusive life. And for some reason I just thought of it today. And there were so many stories Alana did early on that really introduced all of us to telling stories from the past, but bringing them to life with with sound and with all these like historical references that I really love. And That's it's, lovely. It's so lovely. And it's a really good show. No Mondays surprise, at noon. Right here on WHYY. And you can listen 9. to the podcast. Can yeah. I tell you some of my favorite Pulse stories over Please. the years? Because I just thought, I didn't even really do a lot of research. I just thought of three stories that immediately came to mind. And there, there are a lot of great ones. She talked about Alana Gordon, used to be mm-hmm. a reporter here for WHYY at the Pulse. She did a really interesting audio documentary about the discovery of Legionnaire's disease, which happened at a hotel here in Philadelphia. I think I heard it's that It's like a one. medical yeah. mystery. It's so cool. Irina Zhorov, another former Pulse reporter, did a story on the efforts to launch a Russian cattle industry and they brought in American cowboys to Russia to teach them about cattle ranching and there were even like Russian rodeos. It was so cool. One more Mm -hmm. and uh, go look up all these stories. Todd Bookman did a story on people with super hearing and it is one of the most masterful audio mixes in a story Mm. you will ever hear. All three incredible stories among hundreds of incredible stories over the year. Congratulations. Happy birthday to the yeah, Pulse. Yeah, congratulations. Happy birthday. They're a tween now because they're <laughs> like 10. They're double digits. Um, you know, as far because the show, like it takes at least five years to be a mature totally. show. Totally. And now they're in the tween years. They're Go ahead. Years. Mike and, and team. Yeah. Let me ask you, if we make it 10 years, what will you do to celebrate? I have no idea. I'm at, when we Ask me when we make it to one year. Ask me when we make it the because we're almost at nine months now, so we're a baby, we're like an infant, mm. and they're tweens. So congratulations and happy birthday! I wanted a more committed answer, but okay. Happy birthday! You answer that uh, another to day. the Pulse team. Celebrating another birthday, okay, down in um, Delaware. Today is Delaware Day. Delaware, what what is Delaware Day? Well, it was today, December seventh. 1787, when Delaware became the first state to ratify the federal constitution, thus earning the nickname, the first state, (laughs) they officially proclaimed Delaware Day in 1933. (laughs) And in many states, the supporters of the articles worked hard to block ratification. But in Delaware, 
There were there was no overt opposition. Nice. Instead, the normally combative political factions all favored their new constitution. All right, Delaware. And so Delaware, you know, Delaware is, is blowing up. I mean, how would we celebrate Delaware Day? What's a nice way to acknowledge, to re- go read the Constitution, uh, do some tax free shopping? What would we do? Um, I think do some ga- tax free shopping. Yes. Get the the fifty cent cheaper gas down mm-hmm. there. Uh, maybe pay a toll because that's. <laughs> Delaware. You live a lot in Delaware. Of, this is the best idea you have. That's okay. all I got. And you know, and and Delaware. By the way, I want to point this out, Avi. It's a great it's state, One of the, by the few way. states, the only state in our region of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, that has actually grown. Delaware is number seven on the list of population growth when it comes to different states. Oh. They're number seven. The, the population I mean, has they've declined all grown in Pennsylvania. Since no, no. Yeah. But I mean in the in the recent Got years. It. Pennsylvania's population has declined, so has New Jersey. We've talked about that on the show. But Delaware that's people are moving be. there, including me. There you go. I used to live in Delaware. A lot of love for Delaware. My but first then you job like packed WH. up and rolled out. Okay. <laughs> oh, we won't get into that. <laughs> My first job at WHYY was uh, covering stuff in Delaware and had a great time. Very quickly, mm-hmm. want to mention a piece of the inquiry yesterday from B. Foreman that caught our attention. It's about a very special cat named Sheldon. Hi, Sheldon. Sheldon is so special that he is the subject of a song composed by a Grammy-nominated artist. It's a tango song by Emiliano Messias. Here, you're hearing it right now. It's called the Sheldoniando. And Ooh, this is inspired by Sheldon the Cat who lives at a tango school in Fishtown. Can we bring up that sound a little bit? This is the Sheldoniando. We need more songs inspired by cats. That is my policy position. That is your cat person policy <laughs> position. Hi, Sheldon. Thank you. Congratulations on the song, uh, Sheldon the Cat. <laughs> we're congratulating cats. I know. We're just show. congratulating and happy birthdays. <laughs> um, but from cats to dogs now. Okay, let's do it. Lately, you might have seen headlines about a mysterious respiratory illness affecting dogs. It causes coughs. Lethargy and in some cases, acute pneumonia. There is still a lot we don't know yet as testing may be difficult since dog owners do not show up at the vet right at the first few hours after that infection. But this this, in this spike um, in cases, we are asking, is it really that alarming? We wanted to know. And so we are now joined by Dr. Deborah Silverstein. She is a professor of emergency and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Silverstein, excuse me, Dr. Silverstein, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This is definitely a hot topic amongst dog owners. So it's my pleasure to help inform and educate some worried people out there. So help us understand, is this an illness? Is it a cluster of illnesses? What do we know about this pathogen right now? um, And what don't we know? Well, I think at this point, we don't know exactly what is the ultimate culprit in a lot of the outbreaks that have been seen around the country. They are not necessarily new organisms. And I think we have no definitive evidence to suggest that these are different viruses or bacteria than what we have seen over the course of many years in dogs that develop respiratory illness. Many of the viruses and bacteria are easily transmissible. 
And we know that dogs like to get up close to each other when meeting for the first time or if they're housed or boarded in close proximity, then these viruses and bacteria can very easily be transmitted from one dog to another dog. And I don't think there's necessarily reason for alarm at this point. There are a lot of factors that may be causing some outbreaks within different regions of the country at this time. But I I think just using caution and being vigilant is more important than panicking at this point. So why is there this panic, this, this use of the term mystery illness? Is it not mysterious at all? Well, I think until we have information, it's hard to say exactly what it is. Many of the viruses that cause the typical dog cold are quite hard to definitively diagnose by the time we see the animals because the shedding of these viruses is usually either prior to onset of clinical signs, primarily coughing, or within the first couple of days of the cough developing. So by the time these animals present to a veterinarian, it's we get negative tests even though the virus might have already infected the animal's respiratory system. For most animals, the the inflammation clears over time, the animal's immune system does its job, and they get better without treatment, just keeping them at home, giving them rest. But in a, a small subset of patients, they may go on to develop pneumonia or other life-threatening comorbidities that, that could lead to hospitalization for more aggressive care and and antibiotics if needed. Dr. Silverstein, what should pet owners be on the lookout for and what types of reasonable precautions should they take? Yeah, sure. The the typical pet owner should just be on the lookout for any reason to suspect that there's an increase in cases of respiratory infection in their area and using reputable sources such as their veterinarian or even asking if their animal is going to be boarded or daycare, whether they've been members of these animals is probably the best um, information that they can get. I think sometimes social media can cause alarm. So just be careful about reading anecdotal reports from owners and really use the information from local veterinarians and maybe business owners to know whether there's reason for concern in your area making sure that your animals are vaccinated for the culprits that we can vaccinate to your veterinarian about whether or not there are additional vaccines that might be warranted is a good idea. I think just really trying to make sure that you don't expose your dog to status is unknown until we know more about what is causing these illnesses is probably a good idea. I don't think there's reason for preventing your dog from going on walks or maybe going to areas outside that are not highly trafficked by other dogs, but perhaps using caution when um, going to very crowded areas where a lot of dogs congregate unless absolutely necessary. Well, we do have to leave it there, but I really appreciate the time. That is Dr. Deborah Silverstein, Professor of Emergency and Critical Care at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you for joining us on the program, Dr. Silverstein. Thank you, and take care. All right, Avi, coming up, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the very strong link between meat consumption and climate change. It's real. Yeah. I hate to tell you folks, but it's real. I know. So email us your questions if you have 
you know, ways that you cut back on your meat consumption, email us at studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call 888-477-9499. It's the Pulse's theme music. That's a yeah, nice way to go out of this I segment. Like that. All right, we'll see you later, folks. Welcome on back into Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. <laughs> After much lobbying, the organizers of COP28 made a change to their menus, announcing that two-thirds of the food served at the climate summit will be plant-based. The reason? Meat consumption. All the land use and water that comes with animal agriculture is a major driver of carbon emissions. Americans eat a lot of meat, 200% more meat per capita than the global average. Mm. If we all ate a little less of it, could we change our planet's climate trajectory? It's the question we're asking our next guest. That's Kenny Torella. He is a reporter at Vox who writes about factory farming and the future of meat. Kenny, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are glad to have you, Kenny. And for our listeners, are you trying to cut back on how much meat you eat, maybe for environmental reasons or otherwise? Maybe you're doing meatless Mondays. Have you been a vegetarian for years? Do you have tips for going more plant-based? Email us, studio2 at whyy.org or dial in 888-477-9499. Kenny, I want to start here. It's very easy for us to see the way that a car impacts the, the environment. You can see those emissions coming out of the tailpipe. The link between meat consumption and climate is harder, I think, for the average person to see. So what is the link and what proportion of greenhouse gas emissions are attributable to meat and dairy? That's right. So so globally, meat and dairy account for about 15 to 20 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And they're also leading causes of other environmental issues like deforestation and, and water pollution. And you're right. It's, it's kind of harder to understand than, you know, say, um, exhaust from a, a car's tailpipe. So um, it happens in three main ways with livestock production. So the first is just the animals themselves. You know, we farm about 90 billion land animals every year um, around the world. And, you know, they emit a lot of waste. Their manure uh, has high levels of nitrous oxide, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. Um, Another big way from animals is cow burps. So, you know, cows, when they digest food, they emit methane, which is also another really, really potent greenhouse gas. Mm. So you have the animals, but then, you know, you also have to feed the animals a lot. Mm-hmm. And so growing so much food for these 90 billion animals, it requires a lot of fertilizer, which also has a big carbon footprint. And the last thing is that we have cut down a lot of forests and we continue to do so to graze cattle and to grow all that food for livestock. And when you cut down forests, you know, you emit carbon dioxide. And it also means that those forests can no longer sequester carbon dioxide. And, and this is why climate scientists really consider cutting back on meat, especially in, in countries like the U.S. that eat a lot, as one of the most effective ways we can fight the climate crisis. Kenny, quick follow up. I was reading in your reporting. I want to make sure I have this right. 
that a staggering 41% of land in the continental U.S. is used for meat, dairy, and egg production. Is that 41%? Is that right? Do I have that? Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe, but you do have that right. And so huh. to just briefly break that down, uh, about 10% of it is for grazing cattle. Mm-hmm. And then the other chunk is for you know the, the factory farm operations themselves, but especially all the land that's used to grow corn and soy. You know, mm. on the East Coast, we don't have so much corn and, so- uh, corn and soy farms, but if you gr- drive out in the Midwest on the Great Plains and you see those, you know, endless waves of, of uh, corn and soy and other grains being grown, most of that is not going to feed people. It's actually going to, to feed uh, pigs and chickens and, and cattle. Wow. Very interesting. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the connection between our meat consumption and climate. We are speaking with Vox reporter Kenny Torella. Email us, call us. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can email studio2 at whyy.org. Now, um, Kenny, I am a meat eater, but I want to really understand when you say meat, what exactly are you talking about? Are we talking about beef? Are we talking about chicken, uh, pork, fish, like everything? Like break it down in how each category of meat sort of impacts climate change, if you can. Yeah. So, you know, you can kind of think of it as like the bigger the animal, probably the bigger impact it might have on climate change. So by um, by far, beef has the largest carbon footprint of not just any meat, but any food. Um, and then after that, you have pork. And then after that, you have uh, poultry and seafood. Um, but I think, you know, one thing we should be cognizant of when we're talking about uh, environmental impacts from meat production is that, you know, it's so easy these days to get you know, what some people call climate tunnel vision, where we only talk about climate change mm-hmm. and not environmental pollution. Mm. So, um, you know, while beef definitely has the biggest uh, contributor to climate change, um, if you look at poultry, it's a huge part of the water pollution problem across the Midwest. Um, and so, I think, you know, when people are looking at, you know, how can I change my diet, um, you know, cutting back on beef is definitely going to have the biggest impact for carbon emissions. Um, But really, you know, I think just incorporating more plant-based foods into one's diet in general is going to have perhaps maybe a more holistic environmental impact. Interesting. Uh, I want to bring in an email now from Jamie who says, I stopped eating meat after watching the movie Dominion a few years ago. I no longer see animals as food, and the thought is rather unappetizing now. We are losing so much rainforest to agriculture for raising livestock. Reducing or stopping meat consumption altogether will be a wonderful thing for the planet across the entire spectrum. There's someone that's been convinced, Kenny, but how do you reach people that haven't been convinced yet? Um, you know, I felt like growing up that the, the anti-meat argument was a moral argument about eating mm-hmm. other creatures. I really only became aware of this other prong within the last five years or so. Um, what is the prescription for, I guess, spreading the word about this? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think when it comes to the environmental impact, we're really in this stage where we just need to better educate people. And I think that can start with folks like you and me, um, journalists. You know, there there was an analysis that looked at climate journalism in the U.S. and a few European countries and found that 
less than 1% of stories about climate change talked about this issue, even mm. though it's about 15 to 20% of the problem. So a lot of it is that people just kind of have no idea, unfortunately. Um, so I think the, the first step is to just conduct more research and more reporting onto this issue and to for people to talk about it more. Um, it can be uncomfortable to talk about what we eat and our diets, but I think we have to try to get over that and um, really address head on, you know, the climate impacts of our food, just in the way that we started to do with transportation and energy production mm. a couple decades ago. But that doesn't mean it has to be an all or nothing conversation. You know, I think that's where we often get tripped up is that people think, oh, either I have to be a diehard vegan or mm -hmm. I'm not going to change a thing. But there is just so much space in between. And um, I think that's where progress can be made if people don't necessarily just have to view this as an all or nothing issue. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I posted a question on Facebook and asked people how much you know, meat they eat and would they change the diet to save the planet? Danielle said, I eat six servings of protein a day that can be flesh of any kind. And she listed wow. each chicken, beef, lamb, seafood. And, uh, you know, Michael said 180 grams of protein per day. No, they've been saying this for 50 years and nothing has changed since. Got to ask you, I mean, we've been how much how much meat do we eat? And I understand there's a lot of myths. We have this sort of connection for more than just nutritional reasons in eating lots of meat. Yeah. Um, can you talk about why we're so connected and why people are so attached to eating meat and so much of it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot. Like you mentioned, Americans eat about 264 pounds of meat a year, um, which is, 200% more than the global average. It's it's far more than even other wealthy countries, such as, you know, countries throughout Europe. Um, and I think there's a few reasons. I think, you know, meat had a pretty um, formative role in the identity of the U.S., especially in the West. You know, there's the cowboy. Um, and there's very much an, a, a, a pattern in which as countries get richer, they eat more and more meat. Mm. So as one of the richest countries in the world, you know, we, we heap a lot of it onto our plates. But I think a lot of it also just comes down to culture and tradition and the food environment that has been shaped by government policy. Mm. You know, it's it's not an accident that if you go to the store, chicken is, is just $2 a pound or beef is 6 or $7 a pound. Um, you know, meat is is so abundant and, and cheap, not because it's efficient to produce. It's actually quite inefficient because right. it requires so, so many resources, mm -hmm. so much water and land. Um, but because the government has really, you know, put a lot of resources into subsidizing meat over the years um, and exempting meat operations from, you know, even just some of the most basic environmental regulations out there that, that other parts of the economy have to abide by. And it's a land use thing too, right? Kenny, it seems that the government uh, subsidizes the use of land for ranching and other types of activities that would uh, be a links on the chain to meat consumption. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. If you look up and down, you know, the meat supply chain, basically each and every step, you're going to see government intervention mm. uh, in one way or another to make meat cheaper um, and, and more plentiful. And, um, you know, what a lot of people have kind of drawn from that is that meat 
may be cheap, but it's very expensive in other ways in terms of it has a very, you know, uh, very large impact on the environment, as we've discussed. Um, I'd also venture to say it has a, a really large moral cost. You know, about mm-hmm. 99% of animals raised for food are on factory farms in conditions that, you know, would be absolutely illegal to, to treat a dog or a cat. Um, and, and then also there's major public health issues. So a, a lot of um, climate and nutrition experts have said, look, we can both benefit the planet um, and ourselves if we were to cut back on meat and incorporate more, you know, whole grains and fruits and vegetables and beans into our diet. Yeah. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the connection between our consumption of meat and the climate with Vox reporter Kenny Torella. If you have a question or comment, you can email us at studio2 at whyy.org. We got an email from our listener, David, who is the founder of an organization called Responsible Policies for Animals. David says, I have struggled for over three decades as a full-time animal advocate with how to overcome the meat delusion promoted by all of our institutions. People choosing to change their diets can't solve the problem. It must be addressed through policy. And I want to talk policy because you've talked about how the government has sort of instituted these policies that have um, led to more meat consumption. Are there policies that can be implemented that would um, kind of change things like force farmers to be, you know, more environmentally friendly when they're, they're, um, you know, harvesting animals and things like that? Are there Besides, and I'm saying separate from our consumption of meat, are there other policies that could be instituted um, that could help shift things and, and make it more environmentally friendly? Yeah, there's a lot that can be done in the way of, of shaping policy for you know a more sustainable food system, um, like your listener mentioned. Um, I think consumers play some role in this, but governments by you know by far ha- have a bigger role to play, and so. Um, just in the United States, I think we can first look at, we can go back a few minutes to what I was saying about the fact that, you know, the government uh, has created policies that really exempt um, factory farming operations from environmental and labor and animal welfare regulations. And if we were to close those loopholes, um, we might see the price of meat go up a little bit, but it would also mean that um, meat operations would have to internalize some of those costs that are put onto society, and it might result in people, you know, eating a little less meat and more plant-based foods. Um, but I also think there's a lot of other things that can be done too. And so, you know, we heavily subsidize the corn and soy that is fed to livestock. What if we were to further, um, what if we were to shift some of those subsidies to more sustainable protein sources, such as you know beans, as as one mm. one example. Um, and there are a couple of other policies people have put forward, like, you know, we have nutrition labels on our food. What if we put a climate label? Um, Mm. and then we can also look to Europe, uh, as we so often can, um, for, uh, countries that are making some progressive choices when it comes to, you know, food policy. So one example is the Netherlands, you know, their agriculture agency is actually working with the country's largest agricultural research university to try to double legume consumption um, by 2030. Legumes meaning beans, peanuts, and, and, and um, foods like that. And they're doing that by both trying to get grocery stores on board to, you know, better promote these products, 
um, but also by doing research in the fields to help farmers grow these foods more efficiently, um, just as a lot of countries have done with farmers raising animals in the past, there could be uh, more done to assist farmers who are growing, you know, more sustainable foods. Interesting. A couple minutes left, Kenny. Just want to read in one, an email here from Nell who says, my daughter became vegetarian about three years ago. Mm. She's 18 now. It really changed the eating habits of our entire family of six. Um, and then a, a question here from Jody about plant-based alternatives and, and their health effects on the body. Because one of the ideas I think here is that Food technology will save mm. us. We could have plant-based meat alternatives, maybe even lab-grown meat. But, of oh. course, people then wonder about, you know, am I getting any health benefit from, mm -hmm. from that personally? Maybe they're a little freaked out by it. Talk to us about food technology and whether that might save us here. Yeah, so I think food technology can definitely play a role in um, helping people and, and governments and food corporations uh, lower their carbon footprint. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, uh, but the American Dietetic Association has said that shifting to plant-based diets um, is, you know, as long as it's done in a balanced way, um, people can be absolutely healthy on them and in some ways even thrive by being able to increase their fiber, by maybe lowering their risk for, for certain uh, lifestyle-related diseases. When it comes to the food technology question, you know, some people are afraid that, you know, maybe the the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger is, is too processed. And to be sure, they are processed foods. But mm -hmm. I think we also need to take some of the stigma out of the idea of processed because, you know, uh, in, in my job, I, you know, study in depth the food industry and especially the meat industry. And I mean, I think a lot of people might be surprised if they saw just how intensive, just how involved, just how processed um, the meat and dairy that we eat is. And a mm. lot of those processes make sense. You know, they're, they're done to improve food safety. Um, and so I think the word processed um, has become a little too all-encompassing. You know, there are processed foods. So that blanket that, sure, pejorative, that, essentially, yeah. instead of more nuance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, like, not every processed food is a Twinkie, so to speak. <laughs> yes. And and I think one step, and we're about to wrap up, I think one step is just eat less. Because we don't have to stop. We can just cut back, right? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a sort that's of a right. marketing side of this, right, Kenny? I mean, maybe, like you said, not making it an all or nothing thing um, might help for, for some people. That's right. Yeah. And in, in Philadelphia, you, you know, you, you're known for your cheesesteaks, but you also have some of the best vegetarian restaurants. <laughs> That's a great point. So, uh, Thank you so much, Kenny. That's yeah. Kenny Torello from Vox. Uh, we got more Studio Two coming up. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron from Red Meat to the Red Carpet. Now. All right. Ooh, if you are one. a movie buff, it's the most wonderful time of the year to visit the Philadelphia Film Society. They're screening landmark films that critics call the best of the best. This is all based on a prestigious list published every decade by Sight and Sound magazine, which ranks Cherry, the 100 best movies ever. 
all caps. The countdown is on. And after making their way through almost all 100 films at the Society this year, we made it to the top five. Mm. We're curious about what made the cut. So our curiosity correspondent, Matt Gillum, talked to Trey Shields, the group's director of year-round programming, about the classics, the surprise contenders, and a whole lot more. This series is featuring all 100 films, so we've made our way through a long list. But now we're getting to the creme de la creme. We're talking top five. Sitting at number five is a gem of Hong Kong cinema. It's a story of forbidden romance in the mood for love. So all we heard there was a musical theme that runs through In the Mood for Love because so much of it is about just simply watching. I mean, the cinematography here is lush and gorgeous. The acting's phenomenal. Tell us about Wong Kar Wai's film. So this film is really about restraint. It's little glances, nervous looks, and forbidden, you know, little touches between two apartment neighbors who have been scorned by their respective partners. Throughout the film, you get a sense of this growing attraction, uh, respect for each other, but also respect even for the uh, lovers that have scorned them. The romantic tension in the movie you could cut with a knife at times, but just the scenery, the the costumes, the, the atmosphere is also just something to take in. Yeah, and it's something that even recently has been referenced in Oscar winner uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. There's a pinnacle scene in the film where the two characters are pretty much reenacting some of the famous street, rain-soaked, streetlight-lamped, lit scenes. And it just shows that the influence of this film, despite being over 20 years old, continues to resonate. All right, so let's jump from number five to three on the list. A man is lying on his deathbed in a tremendous mansion. He's holding a snow globe. And as he passes from this world to the next, he utters... Now, that single word is, of course, synonymous with Citizen Kane. Trey, talk a little bit about this movie and, and why it's so famous. What, what did Orson Welles really create in 1941 with this? Orson Welles really created like the first kind of glimpse at pure auteur-driven cinema. We're coming out of an era when films are just kind of playing it safe. But he wanted to have creativity on all aspects of the movie, uh, which was hard to do in the Hollywood system. And through that, he not only did this kind of larger life story that's also about, you know, exploring U.S. place in the world, a sense of American exceptionalism at times, for better or worse, um, but also introduced tons of new cinematic techniques. And this film did sit at the top of Sight and Sound's 100 poll for 50 years. It wasn't until 2012 when uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo overtook the behemoth that is Citizen Kane. Where were you? Old Fort Point, out of the Presidio. Of course, I remember. I often go there. Why? Why, why do you go there? Because I, I love it so. It's beautiful there, especially at sunset. Kim Novak and Jimmy Stewart are captivating, and the score by Bernard Herrmann, it's incredible. I love this film. Can you explain why Vertigo is so revered and why audiences still are walking away dazzled by it? I think a big part of the appeal of this movie, Vertigo 
leaves you wondering and questioning. And it's arguably one of the most personal films in that it looks inside and asks the viewer uh, about their own obsessions and the way they view the world. I think the mystery of the film, how it's not, doesn't give you a clean answer, really helps to give its longevity. Vertigo has stood the test of time because it really went somewhere deeper, darker. It wasn't just kind of a popcorn flick. Was it a big coup when Vertigo unseated uh, Citizen Kane at the top of the list? It was. You know, no one really expected it, but Citizen Kane just maybe with the the content and the kind of machismo, bravado of the story, maybe it just allowed uh, someone wanted different stories to come into play. Let's talk about the movie at the top of this latest round of Sight and Sound's Top 100. Uh, I'm sure many people are unfamiliar with it. It's from the Belgian director Chantal Ackerman. It's titled Jean Delman, 23, Kai du Commerce, 1080, Brussels. Pardon me for saying the quiet part out loud, but I don't get it. It's hypnotizing, and at the very end, there is definitely a, a surprise to conclude this more than three-hour-long epic. But help me understand why critics chose this as uh, their top pick. So at the end of the year last year, 2022, when this list came out, the internet and in-person conversations were a roar about this film placing number one. Because it not only skyrocketed to number one, it wasn't even in the top 10 prior. And so a lot of the reasoning behind this is kind of almost a course correction in recognizing the kind of austere, intentional directing of the film. I think a lot of this film also, it gives kind of a credence to watching a film in a theater. I am a big supporter of some say meditative, some say slow cinema and you really don't get that opportunity to really step away from your life and be immersed in a film. Watching and experiencing this film in a theater with the mundane everyday habits of this housewife really creates this larger world and it allows time for you to like ruminate. I don't know, whenever I watch any movies like this, and you just trust the filmmaker. Well, you can catch Chantal Ackerman's hypnotic film December 16th and 17th at the Philadelphia Film Society's Center City Theater. We've been speaking with the Society's year-round programmer, Trey Shields. Trey, thanks for the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I uh, hope to see you all at the Film Center. Man, Matt saw that number one movie and said, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps Keep it, it real. real. <laughs> keeps it real. Okay? I haven't seen the top 100 chair, but I am curious where Dude Where's My Car uh, slotted in. Yeah, not on Gotta be the top 50, list. right? Um, so our producers, Debbie Builder, <laughs> Paige Murray Bessler, Andreas Copes, Charlie Kyer is our engineer. We'll see you next week, folks. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, And I'm Cherry Gregg. By the way, an important holiday begins this evening. For all who celebrate, we wish you a very happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, folks. Happy Hanukkah, folks.